this notion of the experience economy is reshaping the expectations of employees everywhere. Think about the, the life of the student and what that student could possibly have experienced. This is In the Know with ACCT, the voice of community college leaders. I'm Jacob Bray. Welcome back to In the Know with ACCT. Today's episode comes from our annual Congress this past October and features Kevin Mulcahy discussing how to create a more compelling employee learning experience. Kevin is a partner at Future Workforce and co-authored The Future Workplace Experience, an award-winning book that presents a concrete method for tackling today's toughest business disruptions. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, so my name is Kevin Mulcahy, and, and I like how uh, there was an emphasis placed on the word uh, future-proof. And, and that's why I'm going to spend a little time with you over the next 30 minutes or until I'm hauled off the stage. On, on helping you think about what is this word future-proof? And part of it comes from how do we anticipate the future? And so that's what I want to lay out for you is, and let me just bring up some slides here. So I'm going to talk about creating a more compelling employee learning experience. And I've underlined and bolded, I'm sure I've violated some grammar rules somewhere, but underlined and bolded the notion of the employee side. And that's what I'm going to talk about, is what, is, what's, what are corporations doing to shape their employee learning experience? And if community colleges want to future-proof, well, there's this notion, I live in Boston, and there's this notion of um, pucks and moving pucks and skating to somehow keeping an eye on the puck and skating to where that puck is going to be, well, that's how you future-proof. You try to anticipate where that puck is going and, and skate in that direction. And, and if you know what's going on in the minds of the corporations, I think you'll all leave here in the next 30 minutes a little bit either more intimidated, but also more aware of where that puck is going uh, because that's, if you don't meet the corporations where they're going, our students will not be as valuable to them as they could have been, right? That, that's what we're here at the end of the day, is how do we help our students be valuable employees, at least for most of the students anyways. Let's think about factors that reshape the workplace. And we've all had a Rubik's Cube, right? How many people have actually solved one? Let me see some hands. One, there's a few people who solve one. I'm not going to pull one out and ask you to prove it. Don't worry. So, so there's, there's a few people in the room who've solved one. How many people have seen other people solve one? Oh, yes, right. I'm with you there, right? And so the notion of a Rubik's Cube, it, it was uh, this guy, Professor Rubik, he actually invented it to teach architecture. And the, the notion is, as an architectural tool, that you can have multiple moving independent parts, but the whole structure will not collapse. Unless you get so frustrated with it, chuck it against the wall and smash it into pieces. But it's not designed for that. It's designed to demonstrate that architectural principle. Multiple interchanging pieces that can move around fairly independently. Uh, the structure remains whole and will not co collapse. And so think about a workplace. As, as, as a Rubik's Cube. And there's a number of different 
trends and forces that are reshaping the workplace. And everybody's workplace is different, right? So we all start with a different Rubik's Cube configuration. And every one of these employers are trying to solve the Rubik's Cube to make sense of the patterns and make it a better pattern than it was when we picked it up. So I want to show you what's reshaping the Rubik's Cube of the workplace. The first one is this macro notion of what workers in expect from work, right? And when I got my first job in corporate America, I was absolutely delighted with my gray cube and my felt wall and a chair of my own and, and waiting a week for a computer that was assured would come to me at any moment in time. I was delighted with that, right? Delighted. I, was just, I thought I'd made it. A modern employee would not be so delighted. That's all I'll say. We see now workplaces that are trying to almost become homes. People are almost like homing from work. They're more comfortable than my front room, some of these workplaces. Right? The expectations of how we expect to be treated, how we expect to learn, how we, the, where we are expected to do our work, how we expect to engage with others are all different. So there's fundamental expectations of what it means to show up in a workplace. The technologies are different. There used to be a time where we'd go to work and the technologies at work were way cooler and faster and better than the technologies we have at home. We're now dealing with a workforce that has cooler, higher performing technologies at home and are often disappointed with the technologies that work offers them. Right, so the expectations have shifted. The second, and that's for space, that's for technology, and that's around leadership and how they expect to be included and treated and listened to, etc. The second big trend is really around how technology is transforming the workforce and the workplace. And we, we're all familiar with the obvious technologies, right? The, the new phones, the computers, but there's more. Um, there's other sets of technologies. There's now implantables. If, if there's certain companies now that employees are choosing to have an implantable chip to um, accelerate a lot of the efficiencies in getting around the office, etc. In fact, in some Scandinavian countries, it's one of the fastest growing employee trends um, in the workplace. Um, there's exoskeletons to help uh, Japanese shipyards were experiencing a shortage of stout men who are able to work on shipyards and carry 200 pound, 150 pound, 100 pound uh, boxes and parts. And so they outfitted women with these exoskeletons and so to allow women to lift 150, 200 pound boxes, move over and put the boxes down. And it addressed a labor shortage there and using a technology to reskill a different set of people to do a job that was formerly the domain of one type of person. So we have a lot of technology to go from the very small implantables to the very large wearables. And in between, you're starting to see the iPhones and the smartwatches and all of these other technologies emerge. Um, a second category of technologies, however, is in learning. And learning is becoming, and that's what I'm going to speak a bit more about over the rest of the presentation, but learning is changing 
and the technologies that are behind learning are shifting. So I'll reserve that commentary for a little later. And then the third type of technologies are around how we recruit and find employees. And there's a notion now among many companies that if you're finding out about that candidate at the point at which the resume hits the desk, you're already way behind, and that is less likely to be a successful hire. Right? That's, that's very counterintuitive. So employers are now trying to pre-identify the candidates and markets, create a concept of an employer brand to market themselves to sections of candidates that they want to apply. They're also tracking the interactions that employee or that people, potential employees, have with the company ahead of time. And at a certain trigger point, you've been to two open houses or you're connected on LinkedIn to 15 of our people and you're qualified. Those are the people that employers are reaching out to first. Would you like to come in for an interview? But the adage of waiting for the resume to hit the inbox and then starting the employment process or the recruitment process, that game's over. That's too late. The best candidates have been targeted by other employers. And the um, likelihood, and, and LinkedIn did this and Red Hat did this, the likelihood of an employee joining you if they don't already have a pre-existing relationship with the company is less than one third um, of those that have that relationship when that, those populations are given job offers. So there's a whole efficiency here around the recruiting and technology. And the third category, the third shape of the Rubik's Cube is this notion of the changing composition of the workforce. And we're familiar with the changing gender demographics. We're more familiar with the changing, um, let's call it um, socioeconomic demographics that are entering the workplace, with the changing um, cultural demographics. But there's one other big one that's now occurring in workforces. It's this notion of, and I've been using the term worker, not employee in some cases, this notion of the gig economy. And we conducted a survey of about 2,000 people, 450, HR leaders were included in that survey, and they reckoned that about 17% of their new hires were people that weren't actually hired as an employee. They were hired as a contractor, a freelance worker, a gig economy worker. And a lot of HR departments still think about their domain of responsibility as the people on the payroll that are getting a W-2 and not all the pulses and people with a pulse in their workforce, right? So HR has delegated responsibility for non-employees over to other departments, and that mindset is now everybody who works here is a worker, and we need to treat everybody who works here um, under one coordinated roof. And the gig economy, and not everybody actually wants to work full time. And, and there's many roles and tasks that actually benefit an employee base that is equipped and comfortable to bring their best self to work 15, 20, 25 hours a week while they have other life obligations to balance. Right? So this notion not everybody actually wants a job, wants to be an employee. That's not the aspiration. So with that all said, let me show you a, a I'm going to show you a short video. And the thing about future-proofing is 
It's not about trying to anticipate a specific future point. It's trying to understand what are the underlying trends, what are the colors of the Rubik's Cube, understanding that everybody who touches the cube is going to move the parts differently, and the future affects all of us differently depending on where we sit. But sometimes you can gather a number of trends that we can see and paint a picture of what an experience might be like in the first day of an employee sometime in the near future. So let's just look at this for a few moments. Future Workplace presents Emma's first week at Pixel Institute, a leader in wearable computing. It's 6.14 a.m. and my smart bracelet buzzes the optimal time to wake up. So I'm at peak alertness and ready for my eight o'clock meeting. Pixel Institute recruited me for a job through an alert on my smartwatch. All I had to do was swipe right and submit a video profile with a link to my experience graph. Thankfully, resumes are no longer needed. The hiring manager contacted me for an interview and job tryouts. Before accepting the job, I checked out the company on Glassdoor and the job crowds. Now I'm ready for orientation. I download the Pixel Orientation app where I learn more about my job and the company. I use the HR concierge to answer my questions on benefits and policies. It's time to meet my team members, three full-time employees, two independent contractors, and a virtual digital assistant named Katya, who handles key HR tasks for our team, from identifying new candidates to advising on coaching and providing insights on team dynamics. Then I jump on the company's gamified learning hub, which awards me points and badges for learning and recommends new ways to grow on the job, including using iGoals, an app to prioritize my working, learning and fitness goals. There, I can see the objective. So it goes on and on and on. Take a minute and turn to someone beside you at your table and just discuss what actually jumped out? What's the one trend that really jumped out at you? Because none of them are implausible. We've read about all of them individually. But when you start putting trends together, that's where the magic happens. That's where the future is created. It's not determined by a single trend alone. And that's what you have to pay attention to. It's the combination of trends that create a future. Hey, I just want to take a second to remind everyone that ACCT's GLI is happening March 11th through 13th, 2019 at Portland Community College in Oregon. This is an opportunity for boards and presidents to learn about key legal, regulatory, and policy issues associated with safeguarding college campuses with respect to natural disasters, violence on campus, and more. For more information, go to www.acctgli.org to register. The deadline to receive discounted hotel rate is January 31st, 2019. Right? It's not implausible now that these iWatches are capable of changing the learner experience, changing the employee experience. Right? And so we saw a number of trends that converge to create a very different day in the life of that young lady at the workplace, none of which are that implausible. But combined, it's a very different future.
And that, that's what we have to bear in mind. So let me show you uh, three trends that affect learning specifically, corporate learning. Uh, one is this notion that learning is an experience. This notion of the experience economy is reshaping the expectations of employees everywhere. If it's reshaping the expectations of employees, it is reshaping the expectations of your students. And when we ask employers, what do they benchmark against? They used to say we benchmark against other employers. Now they say, well, our help desk needs to be benchmarked against the Apple support desk. Our online video, uh, videos for our corporate university needs to be benchmarked against Netflix, right? You have to think about the benchmark is what the hell did these people do in the last 48 hours outside the campus, off campus? And that's the benchmark for the experience that they expect when they walk on campus, right? And it changes everything, that mindset. So when you go back to your, your campuses, think about the, the life of the student and what that student could possibly have experienced in the 24, 48 hours, a week before joining your campus, and then they're like, what do you mean I can't enroll online? What do you mean I can't register? My, what do you mean I can't X and Y and Z? Because they did it with something else. So what are they using? What expectations is that setting? And what experience do you want to, uh, what experience expectations do they have? And so this notion here is the last best experience becomes the minimum expectation for the experiences we want everywhere, including on our learning campuses. So the experience game, it's not what new subjects and what new teaching protocols and pedagogies, it's what's the experience of being a learner. If you were to pick a single item that would affect every one of your students, how can we make the learning experience better? Or how can we make the experience better overall for the bulk of our students on our, on our campuses. That is the silver bullet, not a, a particular initiative here, a particular initiative there. Aim for the experience, because they're rating you. They've rated their Uber ride, they've rated their meal, they've, they can rate my professor. There's a lot of rating going on, and this notion of, I just expect my experience to be better. So, Positive employee experiences do impact employee engagement at work, right? And I've, I've scratched out the numbers. Nobody should be given statistics after a lunch. It's just mean, just mean. So I'm not showing you any, <laughs> it's cruel, it's unkind. So I'm not showing you any numbers, I've blacked out the numbers. But just say, a lot of em employees are less likely to leave. They're more likely to go above and beyond on their, on their work and they're more likely to achieve higher performance if they have a better experience, and that's from a survey from 20,000 or more employees. Now, if we think about, let's just replace employee with learner. Do you speculate that a positive learner experience would cause learners to be less likely to leave the program, less likely to leave their learning journey, right? Are learners who have a better experience more likely to go above and beyond, take on stretch courses, take on more courses, right? This is the behaviors that we want. 
These are the behaviors that we're trying to measure. These are the metrics we're trying to solve for. And would learners ultimately be likely to achieve a higher learning performance if the experience of the learning was better? Wow. These are speculative points. I argue, yes, to all three. So the question here is, in the corporate world, the key question that employers are trying to address is, how can we motivate employees to continue to develop themselves? The corporations are incapable now of dictating and keeping up with the pace and the desire of the, the pace of learning that employees expect and the breadth of learning that employers need to employees need to have and the experience of learning that employees need to go through. So it's, it's getting down into now the notion of motivating the, the learners, um, the employees to learn on the job, and it's the only way that the corporations can stay relevant. And so they're doing, they're doing this with three mindset shifts. One, employers are shifting from this notion of programs to learning experiences. You went from a learning program to a learning experience. And, and McKinsey has a, a dedicated learning um, facility, a corporate university. And the learning experience at McKinsey two years ago used to start after the employee arrived on the McKinsey campus, checked in, and showed up at 9 a.m. for their class, uh, for their first session. Now it begins the moment they register, and the app manages the whole experience of even getting to the campus how they're greeted, how they're welcomed, how they're oriented. They're realizing that the learning is not just what happens in that session. It's, it's the experience of ha what happens before and after that session affects the, notion, the, the, the feeling of how I experience my learning. If the coffee's bad, I'm not going to learn well, right? If, if I come out and the cafeteria is closed, I'm not going to retain well. I've, you've, you've, you've affected, you've, you've put all the investment in the learning, and then you've, you've poisoned it beforehand, and then you've, you've impacted it afterwards by not paying attention to the full learner cycle, whatever that is for you. The second notion was moving from content creators, where corporate um, Corporate departments would create all their own content. If it wasn't invented here, if it wasn't built here, if it wasn't made by our corporate faculty, it's not good enough for our learners. Does that sound in any way familiar to any of your, any of your communities at all? Right? And so now they're now learning curators. If there's a better tube about this on YouTube, a better um, documentary or film about this on YouTube or video, great. If, there's, if it's better elsewhere, let's not build what we're already using. And this notion now, if we need to be a learning curator and pull the learning resources together and be really good at curating learning journeys and versus building learning content. That's a huge shift in the mindset of the corporate learning environment. And the third one was this notion of um, consumers of learning to serial learners. And consumers of learning was take course, finish course, get recognition for course, get compensated for taking course based on grade for aforementioned course. Right? Sound familiar? 
And now in, they're, they're saying, well, now what we need is serial learners. If you needed to go online and take half the course, and you felt that you only needed that half of the course to get on with your job, what I want to see is that you're enrolling and taking courses, but we're not measuring completion as the metric any longer, because different learners as employees need different things from the course content. And let's stop measuring completion. And now they're measuring what's more important is that you're learning and you're trying and at least going through at least half, half of a course that you enroll in. And, and, being, and trying to promote serial learning. Not advocating that for the colleges. I'm just showing how the co corporations are thinking about it. And that the notion of completion is disappearing in the, in, at corporate universities. Right? It's not about completion. And you have to figure out the two, right? You have to meet, this is, what, this is the intersection that you have to figure out. So the second one is this expansion of MOOCs, massive open online courses into corporations. As everybody uh, uh, seen MOOCs, right? There, there's, there are these, uh, there, uh, has anyone taken one? How many people have taken one? A fair representation, a fair representation. Well, let me show you what MOOCs. MOOCs are part of your competition for the learner's attention. edX. edX has 14 million global learners registered online, and that number has been growing. These numbers are few. That's how many people are they're logging onto their computer and they're learning. 2,000 courses, 130 different institutions and growing that are global learning partners, and 50 million course enrollments. Okay? The premise learning, uh, edX was started um, f five years ago by MIT and Harvard as a joint venture uh, to bring learning to the world. And at the time, they said, under no circumstances will we give college credit for learning. Right? That was not part of the mission. Now they do. There are now 25,000 credit eligible learners on edX because they feel that how their understanding of how people learn and their understanding of test taking online and testing the alert that the learning has happened and the curation of that learning is making them confident enough to give corporate credit for online learning through these platforms, whether or not, sorry, corporate credit, uh, college credit, whether or not you're online on these platforms, right? And so, um, there, there's a, a, a mic, um, if you're looking for a case example, there's a course called uh, the MicroMasters. And essentially, think of it as one third or 20% of a master's degree. 40, uh, 25 different colleges are doing these. Uh, from MIT, Boston University, all the way down to Queensland University on the other side of the world. And the notion is, if you take these five online courses, and you get through them and all the assessments, et cetera, you will get granted a MicroMasters certification. You can turn that, and it'll cost you $200 a course. So for $1,000, you're getting about 20% of a master's degree from BU. And we're containing it as a MicroMasters to give it a sense of completion. And if you want to finish at BU, you can come pay the extra 50, 60,000 and just take the, the remaining 25%, right? But still, 
I'll tell you what happened at MIT. MIT made the same offer. 46 students who had completed the MicroMasters program enrolled on the MIT full-time program, and MIT would never have found those 46 people, ever, in their screening. That none of them would have been accepted to MIT. So don't think of, it, think of it as a different entry point into it. Now, day one, the person beside me here who came in online, non-traditional learner at MIT, has 20% of the course done. I'm sitting here on day one. Now, what they're watching is what's going to happen as these people get through the other 80%. Will this be a new entry point? So what's the entry point really into the college? Because some of the smartest colleges in the world are rethinking the definition of what that entry point is. And on the back end, GE in Boston, if anyone, GE headquarters, if anyone completes a MicroMasters online at any one of the courses, you're guaranteed a job offer at GE. Guaranteed. Microsoft has said for any community college person, if you pay for one course yourself and you get through it, we, Microsoft, will pay for your second one, right? So now what we have is corporations subsidizing your students to learn on edX. There's your competition, folks, right? It's, that's how it's, hap that's how it's gonna happen. It's the likes of edX, et cetera. So, and it goes on. And I'm gonna be around all day when people wanna continue this conversation, but watch this space very carefully. And PwC, they put out, they had an upskilling of their employees and they designed a course for their employees. And somebody said, well, why should just our employees benefit? What would happen if you opened it up to non-employees? In year one, 14,000 employees took the course. 74,000 non-employees took the course. I met the woman who started this course last week and she said 300,000 people have now taken this course online. So PwC has educated 300,000 people on making smarter business decisions with data analysis. Are they your competition or are they your co-opetition or are they going to be your future learning partner? It gets worse or better. There's this notion now of stackable credentials. If you go to IBM acclaim, on a claim platform, IBM has 15 hundred badges, digital badges that it gives to mark learning in their corporation. And if you have taken a course um, in IBM, you get a digital badge. If you've taken a, a program outside IBM, there's a matching digital badge. Because what the challenge was, we, we don't know what, we knew what you had when you joined us, but we don't know what you've learned in the three or four years that you've joined us. And think about the, the scouts. And these badges sort of roll up to that one ultimate eagle badge, right? But you get badges for all these things, and they're stackable badges, and they stack to different levels and different grades. So this is now what's happening in corporate America, is the notion of what is the, uh, the, the building block, the Lego block of education, is now a stackable badge. And badges can be earned in a lot of different ways. And what, we're see what they're building, why they're doing this, is this Alexander here, this notion of a skills registry. How do I find the people with the skills I need internally for the open rec that I have over there? And sometimes if I ask, 
who around, who do we know in the company that knows blockchain? I'm going to get a certain set of candidates. If I go on, who has taken an online course on blockchain? I'll expose other candidates who are interested in the topic, but nobody knew enough about them to recommend them for the open rec. And they're doing this to accelerate the filling of their open recs. But wait, there's more. Northeastern University have said, that's an awesome idea, because they're from Boston, right? Everything's awesome, awesome, right? So that's an awesome idea. And what we're going to do is instead of building our own data analytics course, we're going to say that anybody who takes the IBM course online, because IBM opened it up, we're going to match, a, we're going to give a Northeastern University credits for those. And they have four courses that they're giving Northeastern Uni University credits for, a course that nobody had to get out of their pajamas and log on to anything at Northeastern. They logged on to IBM or logged on to edX, completed the course, showed the professors, and are getting Northeastern credits. So again, the other notion is you don't have to do all the teaching yourself, right? There is an aggregator here. If you're willing to be creative on where is some of that great content that your community of future employees needs, and if you can't build it yourself, has somebody already built it, like IBM, like PwC, and just badge and integrate that into your credentialing system to be a graduate of your course. So that's, that's really what I wanted to leave you with, is those three notions of learning as an experience, the expansion of the MOOCs into the corporation, and starting to touch onto the colleges, and this notion of emerging stackable credentials, and they're not independent things. They're all starting to converge. So that's it. My, my, my final thought for you is, it's not the strong, this is a Darwinian theory here, a little education. It's not the strongest, nor the most intelligent of any institution or creature that survives and thrives. It's the one most responsive to change. What are you going to go back and change for 2019? Thank you for listening to the ninth episode of the second season of In the Know with ACCT. Remember to subscribe so you're notified when we release a new episode. We'll see you next week.